We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of humanity. What is happening with that? We have this huge migrant crisis. These people, hundreds of thousands of people who are fleeing uh, terrible wars, Sometimes, maybe it's for economic reasons. I'm not exactly sure, but it's a huge, huge crisis. The migrant crisis. It has reached truly historic proportions. Our guest today writes, quote, It's time to acknowledge this as a moment of truly historic transformation. And not only in Europe. This crisis announces a global transformation. Well, that... I'm looking forward to hearing about our guest today. Patrick Smith describes what we're talking about. Quote, the images, the television footage, the news reports, boatloads of migrants beaching off Greek islands, mobbed trains and buses in Budapest, a truckload of 71 fatalities ditched along an Austrian highway, young children drowning in the tides. We can't help but be moved by that. Are they migrants or refugees? Are the governments of Europe doing enough? What about the people of Europe, given their own economic challenges? Is there resistance to the newcomers? Why are so many risking and sometimes losing their lives? Will this crisis blow over like so many crises seem to do? And what is the proper American role, if any? Our guest today is Patrick L. Smith, foreign affairs columnist at Salon. Patrick, thanks for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. A pleasure, Bert. Nice to talk again. He was Patrick was a correspondent abroad for many years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune and The New Yorker. His most recent book, and I highly recommend it, is Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century, published by Yale University Press. Well, again, Patrick, thanks for being with us. Let's start by defining. Let's start by defining the crisis with three related questions. How many people are in this new great migration, and from where are they coming, and why? Well, uh, there are numbers, but uh, <clears throat> I should begin by explaining to your listeners. It's, 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 it's sort of like how long is a piece of string. Uh, uh, the official number in, uh, in in the European case, and again, to your listeners, we're talking about two crises, one in Europe and one uh, between North and South America, okay? My, thesis, my, 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 my thought is that these are variations on the very same theme. Aha, uh-huh, I was wondering uh, about that, yeah. In the European case, we have an official number uh, 
January through August, 350,000. But those are the heads that uh, officials uh, have, in one way or another, been able to count, customs officials, police, or what have you. I don't think it has much to do with reality when, <clears throat> when Germany is talking about taking, by itself, 800,000, uh, more than double the official figure, this year alone. Uh, uh, so uh, we don't know. I, I think we're into seven figures in the European case. Mm. Uh, mm. In, in, the, in the case of uh, North and South America, the Latin American migrations northward uh, on everyone's mind in, this, uh, in our country, yes. uh, I don't think you could possibly count. I mean, we have, we have lumps, uh, for example, the very tragic... Uh, exodus of children last year. I think the number uh, on uh, Central American children, I think the number on that was about 50,000. Okay? But again, it doesn't really have anything to do with reality, and in this case, mm. truly, you, you, cannot, uh, you cannot tell how long the piece of string is, because when do you start counting? Uh, mm. Mexican, Central American, and Latin American migration northward uh, for one or another reason, political repression, economic desperation, or what have you, has been going on a very long time. I think, once again, we can quite safely say we're well into the millions, seven figures. Wow. And I wonder if there were any uh, numbers of, for the massive migrations from the effects of World War II. I have no idea. Probably similar, more? I don't know. Uh, hmm, you mean in Europe? Yeah. Uh, goodness knows. I mean, I don't know who would count and all that. We, yeah. we, we, we veer close to the question of definition. What's a refugee, right? Right. Uh, I, uh, I, I would just guess. I, I wish I were more of a scholarly historian than, than I can uh, be for you right at this moment, Bert. But I'd say it was probably larger, but I do not know. Either way, it's, it's just huge now. It's, it's absolutely yeah. huge, and we cannot look away from this. You really, one can't look away from it. What, what, among the, the migrants, and we need, of course, to get, well, let, let's do it now. Migrants, refugees. What, right. These things are rather more important than your listeners may assume, these terms. Yes. A, a refugee was... Refugee was defined by the UN uh, uh, Refugee Organization. I think it was 1951 or two. Okay, about 65 years ago. Right. And it, <clears throat> to be a refugee, you had to have, you had to demonstrate a reasonable fear, a plausible fear of persecution. Okay. Mm -hmm. They didn't say political, they didn't say religious, they just said persecution. But you had to have that. If you didn't have that, you were a migrant, and you could not, uh, you could not present a case for asylum. All right? now, uh, the circumstances at the time dictated the definition. But those circumstances are, are no longer relevant. Uh, we have Syrians, Libyans, uh, Iraqis, South Asians uh, on our side of the ocean, all, all the 
Central Mexican, Central Americans, and so forth. Uh, uh, in some cases, there there is a there is a fear of a reasonable fear of persecution. Yes, but by and large, they do not fit the definition of refugee, and so that doesn't mean we send them home. Uh, I, the argument being now made now among uh, uh, sound thinking Europeans. I just read something the other day and in England, uh, from England about this, is that we have to change the definition. Yes. Uh, if your house has been bombed, your children can't go to school, everyone's hungry, you've lost most of your relatives, and you don't know what's coming tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. There's no work. Uh, you know, the usual thing we read about in, yeah. in Aleppo or where, where, wherever else. Uh, uh, maybe you are not in danger of persecution, but damn it, you're a refugee. Plainly, you're a refugee if you're going to make your way to the to, to the Mediterranean and, and cross in a dangerous boat. Uh, so the definition uh, is is too restrictive. It has to be opened out to address 21st century realities. Mm. And the, the one thing that they're looking for, it seems, is a, another important term is asylum and uh, re- asylum the term asylum kind of requires th- being accepted as a refugee not simply a migrant I-, I wonder how difficult it is to to get asylum and you know it's asylum yeah. maybe not from direct political persecution but bombing you know syria uh, is, is uh, tremendous tremendous violence talk about this asylum that they're looking well for. uh it's an official. It's an official category. You apply for asylum, and when you are granted asylum, depending on which country is doing the granting, um, you, you are given uh, uh, residency, uh, perhaps eligibility to work, perhaps social benefits uh, when needed, uh, which is probably most of the time, at least at first, yeah. uh, and in, in altogether an opportunity to integrate into the society because you're recognized as fleeing uh, something that warrants asylum. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, I, again, I, I, would, I would like to make a distinction uh, for the benefit of your listeners. Uh, and uh, it, I learned this long, long ago when I was a correspondent in Southeast Asia and I was covering the boat people. Mm. Um, the official line then was that uh, uh, the Vietnamese were desperate uh, after the 75 uh, victory in Vietnam uh, to get out because there was a lot of political repression and the economy wasn't going well and so on and so forth, right? Uh, Vietnam was pushing them out. That That was the official position. When I looked at this for a very prolonged period, uh, I realized that's completely false. That's propaganda. Um, we in the West were pulling them out by way of uh, uh, broadcasts, you know, the usual sort of voice of America and Radio Liberty and sort of this sort of thing. The State Department was actively encouraging mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> in subtle, often covert ways the vote people to get into the, which I found to be exceedingly cynical, yeah. encouraging this mass exodus of Vietnamese, these dangerous crossings in the South China Sea. So we had to, uh, when I was writing about this at last, uh, 
we had we had to distinguish between push factor and pull factor and and the reality then was we were pulling the Vietnamese out the phrase the phrase used at the time was that uh, stung by our defeat we were trying to bleed Vietnam white mm. okay mm. now let's take this logic to our current situation right. the official position now is and, and and many of us take this uh, as a, a, a patently obvious assumption is that these migrants are are being pulled out by our attractive economic opportunities and so forth, right? They want to partake of sure. the Western world's prosperity. Yeah. I don't agree at all. Really? I, I think that's, that's to flinch from reality, and it's to flinch from the responsibility we absolutely must face for our very large part in causing this crisis. And that is to say, we have created the conditions in these countries that are pushing these people out. They are not leaving their homes because they uh, want to leave their entire lives and cultures behind yeah. in order to live in Stuttgart. Uh, they are leaving their homes because they may not even have one anymore, and there's a very, uh, they're very perilous, uh, more or less unbearable circumstances in many cases. They're being pushed, okay? Yeah. So uh, we have to get past this mythology that these people are kind of coming over and freeloading or, or wanting or desiring to. That's not the story. You hear it a lot, primarily from people of a, of a conservative mm. uh, yes. uh, <coughs> anti-immigration right. bent, right? Yes. And that, that I think, is so many uh, factors in what you were just saying are very, very you know, interesting and very important points, Patrick Smith. If you just tuned in, by the way, Bert Cohen here. This is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the refugee migrant crisis. And, you know, if people are just coming for money, like to Germany, because it's doing, it's, you know, a strong economy there, then they're not refugees. And that does kind of change the picture. And I wonder about, I mean, certainly in the United States, the, the whole uh, so-called illegal immigrant uh, business is, you know, largely, let's face it, racist, it seems to me. I mean, you know, if the, the people coming to our borders were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, I don't think they'd be anywhere near the uh, upset that's happening. Meanwhile, the people of Europe, they're having their own economic challenges. I wonder about... And, and you've heard of some of the, uh, you know, ultra-right-wing, you know, super-nationalists. Uh, they don't want them. I, I wonder about their resistance to these newcomers. Does this situation in Europe, I wonder in what ways it might mirror our own border uh, problems or concerns. In, in other words, is there in Europe a similar, largely racist, anti-immigrant sentiment? And is this a, a small fringe minority, or are there governments that are feeling the same way and, and trying to erect walls? What you have here is what you see there, and uh, it's regrettable on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. On the one hand, you have uh, people here uh, uh, of goodwill and understanding, uh, and they want to, they propose to uh, renovate our immigration policies maybe not in recognition of the history of these crises and our role in them, 
but in in recognition of 21st century realities, let's say, okay, uh, it, then you have uh, viciously anti-immigration blocks. Uh, uh, I don't know whether anybody aspiring to the Republican nomination uh, has any sympathy whatsoever for uh, immig- the plight of immigrants. Uh, certainly, they have no consciousness of why these of, of our responsibility for more or less creating these immigrants, uh, uh, and I'll explain that in a while. Uh, but uh, same in Europe, you have uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, in Germany uh, is really coming up very, very admirably in my view, yes, and I yes. and it's uh, your listeners can take that as an absolutely objective judgment, yeah, because I don't tend to have a whole lot of time for Christian Democrats. But uh, she is doing, uh, she is really rising to the occasion, and it, to me it suggests that she uh, has a good grasp of the, the magnitude of this problem and the historical, you know, its, its place in history. On the other hand, you have in Germany uh, alternative for Deutschland, uh, Alternative for Germany, a right-wing party, vigorously anti-immigration. Right. Uh, the French, uh, Front National, uh, and uh, others, uh, sort of fringy parties. But let us not make any mistakes. The, the Christian Social Union, which is a, a sort of mainstream party in southern Germany, uh, conservative party in Britain, um, Famously xenophobic Ireland mm. uh, uh, and conservatives in France, uh, quite mainstream in 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 their uh, political location. Let's say there you get the same thing. I mean, as I said uh, in one of my columns, uh, uh, Viktor uh, Orban, the prime minister of of Hungary, really ought to make a run for the Republican nomination over here. Wow. I mean, he fits right in with these. With these, with these extremist uh, candidates, who uh, you know, the the far extreme is Trump's position: send 11 million people home. Right. But uh, the rest of the pack are running to catch up with them. Uh, each one trying to outdo the other. So uh, you get the same mix on both sides. I would say one more thing before we move on. Sure. Um, <clears throat> those who are have a good grasp of this uh, problem are far ahead of we Americans. Merkel, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the um, uh, president of the European Union executive, uh, are far ahead of we Americans in terms of what they are doing. Okay, They're not talking at the moment. They're doing it. Mm. Uh, Juncker came out with a a big number. He wants a. He wants 160,000. He he wants 160,000 uh, migrants to be accommodated and uh, dis- properly distributed throughout the 28 members of the EU. Uh, I've already discussed Germany's commitment to 800,000 this year and uh, uh, 500,000 a year for several years. This, this uh, miracle is is sending subsidies to towns, villages, and, and municipalities all over Germany. To, for uh, resettlement funds. This is action, right? Uh, uh, yes, they have plenty more talking to do, but they are acting 
Uh, over here, we're just talking. Yeah, uh, and, and that's a rather disappointing. And of course, they're acting there too, in uh, you know, in not such a positive way. A network news program. I actually saw the other night migrants crowded into small rubber rafts heading to Greece, which was treacherous enough. Then we witnessed what appeared to be Greek Coast Guard vessels actually disabling the overloaded boats, cutting their gas lines so the boats became adrift. And the Unbelievable. C- yeah, the CBS nudes boat had to rescue the migrants. You know, so there's that aspect wow. as well. It was yeah. t- in, in this way, Bert, I think it's sort of a moment of truth, okay, yeah. for all people describing themselves as Westerners, okay? And, and I, by this I mean the following. We hold ourselves to be the bearers of very high ideals mm. rooted in the Enlightenment. Uh, if you mm. wish to go back further, you can. But let's just say Enlightenment ideals, the, the rights of man, and so forth. And we uh, have our choice now. We are going to have to measure up to those or fail. Uh, if you have scenes like the one you just described or these gruesome situations unfolding in Hungary where uh, I mentioned uh, Viktor Orban, he, he has absolutely no sympathy for what is going on or any of these migrants. He comes right out and says, they are Muslim and we don't want Muslims in our Christian country. Mm. I'm sorry, this is, a, this is an abject failure to live up to the very things that we claim to make us superior uh, in the human community. We're going to have to, we're, we're going to, have to uh, live up to this, or we, we will... Are you there? Bert? Yes, yeah. I lost you for uh, just a We second. will have to live up to this, or, or we will have to stand uh, with considerable shame as the world recognizes we, we talk a lot, but do, do far less. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, and it's it's really appalling. And you know, I, I, you talked actually in the beginning that this crisis announces a global transformation, and it's just what you were talking about. Is you know, are we going to live up to our uh, our ideals, our our traditions of welcoming people? You know, give me your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse, or is it something else? And you say that. Relations between the West and non-West, or North and South, or developed and developing nations, or the First World and the Third World, these are all basically the same economic and cultural divisions. Good can come of this. Good can come of this, at least on a on general principle. But it's imperative that solutions are as big as the problem, unquote. That, that's quite an analysis and some degree of hope in there. Perhaps you might explain by describing perhaps just a snapshot of where relations have been between these two worlds before the crisis. Yeah. Well, uh, for, uh, for reasons of uh, historical coincidence, uh, the West has been and, and certainly asserted itself as the dominant force in the world since uh, hmm. Columbus and da Gama in the late 15th century made their journeys to Asia and America. Yeah, really. Uh, we have been, we have been a, a, the world's standard bearers. Uh, once again, hmm. uh, our values are superior, mm-hmm. and uh, 
we are going to do things our, you know, the world is going to do things our way because we know best. I, I put this rather simply, but it's, it holds. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, uh, in consequence, what, what we have to look out now and, uh, and, and recognize that these crises are very largely of our own making. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Many, many years, uh, uh, at least back to the imperial uh, uh, decades in the 19th century, uh, <clears throat> we have we have proceeded according to policies uh, intended to disrupt uh, other societies, yeah, yeah. subjugate them, and exploit them in that order. Okay, some of these societies were highly sophisticated. Again, for reasons of oh, yeah. historical accident, they were less developed than we were materially. Uh, and uh, come forward, what we've watched uh, since World War II is a transfer of influence, let's just say with the Middle East, uh, from the colonial powers, Britain and France primarily, uh, to the United States. Um, <clears throat> this, this occurred after the 45 victories because the Europeans were were weak and they were broke, and yeah. we were neither weak, weak nor broke, but we were very ambitious. Hmm. The, the Middle East became our purview roughly by the Suez Crisis, I would say, in 56, was a somewhat defining moment. Since then, mm-hmm. it's been our ballgame. Yes. Uh, the history books will bear this Yeah, it out. used to be the Brits, now it's ours. Yeah, now, uh, the policies we have... Uh, uh, Deployed in the Middle East since then, have been <clears throat> have been uh, primarily exploitative. We all know the we all know the the holy grail here is oil, uh, and uh, we have supported oil states that do little to nothing for their populations. Yes. Um, and to make a quite long story, perhaps a touch too short, but for the <laughs> sake of your time, Bert. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, in sum, we are we have created these circumstances. Uh, most immediately, I, I would think your listeners could just see this for themselves: the Iraq situation, our insistence on taking down the Assad government in Damascus, uh, the Afghanistan situation. These are of our making. Uh, we have produced exceedingly violent, unstable societies. Uh, and we have to claim ownership here, okay? Now, on our, on, on, in our hemisphere, I, I think it's pretty open and shut that more or less a parallel pattern uh, developed in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries in our relations with Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the support for dictators, repression, you know, d- dreadful economic deprivation, depending on which country you're talking about. Uh, We own this, Bert. This is our our real estate. And uh, if if we are going to resolve this, that's the first thing we have to do, is recognize causality and responsibility. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, and and one could say I'm, I'm reminded of a line: uh, "Chickens coming home to roost." And uh, yeah, not that. Yeah. <laughs> or "Empire Strikes Back." All those sort of cliches. Yeah, and empires kind of tend to cave in on themselves. I mean, you look at at France, which had a big empire. Now the people who you know were taken advantage of in in the vast French Empire came back yeah. to France. Same with Italy. Lots right. of different dance. Well, going back to your question of, about why I consider this transformative. Yes, please. I, I think we have reached a point where our policies, most immediately, right on in the news as we speak, uh, the Syrian situation. Yes. We can't go... We, we have only two alternatives. We, we can proceed with the bombing and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and and watch the consequences arrive on our shores, um, or we can alter our way of doing things. But the game is up as far as uh, uh, executing t- traditional notions of foreign policy and military policy and so forth, uh, while the consequences remain out of sight for the rest of us. That's over. Uh, the uh, the uh, My... Last book, but one. Uh, I, I'd argue we're we're living in a, what I call a post-Western world. Okay, uh, East and West are are achieving a, a gradually a, a certain kind of parity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the division between East and West, which was noted as far back as Herodotus, uh, is. Mm-hmm. Is proving to be rather imaginary. We only have we have one large human community, and that's what we're seeing play out in Europe now. So this is a moment I would say of very considerable magnitude. I don't want to come over to your listeners as as histrionic or overly dramatic, but I think it's sort of epical. Myself, yeah. uh, this, these crises will die down, but uh, in terms of the numbers dropping or, or what have you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very, very fundamental uh, uh, adjustment, transformation in relations between privileged, advanced countries and uh, less privileged, underdeveloped countries. That's what I'm talking about. And it, it, the history of it is really quite remarkable. And history may be something that maybe people don't think about, they don't care about, what does that have to do with today? Well, if you go to the Middle East, if you look at the Middle Eastern cultures, it has a lot to do with that. What happened in 1919 with the arbitrary drawing of maps by the Western powers, people are still angry about that. It had nothing, they weren't asked about it, it was done to them. And the governments that have been uh, in place there, you know, the royalty, same with with, uh, Central America, Latin America, there's this pattern of a few super wealthy, powerful people, again, with all the power, with governments serving them, and everybody else. And eventually, you know, that can only hold out for so long. I mean, it's it's swell for the upper class for a while, but after a while, these people are leaving. Going back to an earlier point, Bert, uh, uh, these societies uh, in the Middle East, uh, are notably in the Middle East, uh, well, you, you could extend it to Vietnam. These were very absolutely. highly evolved societies. Okay, yes. they oh, they were they were complex, socially complex, very uh, economically co- 
complex, uh, very extensive by way of trade relations and these sorts of things. But uh, for for historical reasons, they did not. They failed to develop uh, scientifically and there and therefore materially uh, as the West did. Um, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century onward, right? Uh, and so material superiority hmm. is is what's at work here. But when you talk about lines on maps, uh, you see this in Africa too, incidentally. Mm, uh, that's true. Uh, the, your, the, the line at issue in, in uh, uh, the Middle East now is called the Sykes-Picot uh, line, yes. uh, mm-hmm. drawn in 1916, I believe. Uh, a British diplomat and a French diplomat uh, drew lines, drew divided Iraq and Syria and so forth, uh, in, in anticipation of the what would happen after the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And this will be your sphere of influence, and this will be yours. Right. right? Well, well, I, I, I urge your readers to consider exactly why the Islamic State uh, has made it a, a point, an explicit point of uh, declaring uh, a new caliphate uh, wherein that line is going to be erased. Yes. What they are, they are doing it already. Uh, the Islamic State has, it has, it has no relationship whatsoever with the frontier between Syria and Iraq. It's on both sides. Uh, I urge your listeners to ask, why would that be? It goes just to your point. I mean... Uh, and the word we're looking for is disruption. Uh, we have it's, fair enough. These these uh, these societies were materially underdeveloped, but uh, they were highly evolved in many other important ways. And uh, the colonial period has was a period of very uh, extensive disruption. Right, all all sorts of things were disrupted. The mechanisms of these societies were disrupted. Uh, and uh, the policies America has pursued, uh, since, uh, notably since it t- took, took uh, the dominant position among the Western powers in the Middle East, uh, have been equally disruptive. I mean, you can look at a picture of Iraq today, and, and it's, that's not hard to figure out. Yeah. We've destroyed these societies. Yes, okay? yes. Uh, and and this is just coming back. They are now coming back to sort of, if you'll forgive me, bite us in the backside. Yes, absolutely. We're talking about migrants, refugees. Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. Our guest is Patrick Smith, who is a foreign affairs columnist at Salon and was correspondent abroad for many years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune. There is a Getting back to specifics of what's going on now, there's a refugee summit which Chancellor Merkel will host uh, on September 24th. It seems that each country right now is dealing with the crisis independently. Why must there be a coherent pan-European policy? And what about the American role? Should we be at the September 24th refugee summit? Uh, The... the, the the Europeans have have been very, taken by surprise here, perhaps more than they should have been. But uh, hmm. this is it is as it is, as we say. Yeah. Uh, and in con- in consequence, uh, they're very discombobulated. They they 
there, this is a crisis management at the moment. Yes. And I, I think what Merkel wants to do in, in concert with uh, the aforementioned uh, uh, Jean-Claude Claude Juncker, the, the um, uh, EU president, is develop what, what everybody knows they need, a coherent European-wide policy having to do with numbers, um, uh, the, the disposition of migrants, how, okay, what happens to them, uh, and also new uh, asylum and immigration policies. Right. I've already hinted that I, I would like to see, uh, at least over time, a redefinition of the, this, uh, this, this very consequential term, a refugee. What is a refugee? Um, but there, I, I see them as on the move, right? And uh, the other side of this moon is uh, Merkel is uh, hitting, hitting back at the uh, anti-immigration uh, constituencies right squarely on the nose. Yes, love I take, it. I, I take Good my hat you. off to her for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Now, over... What should we do? Yes. First of all, we should be at that summit. There's no talk of it, hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be there. And it doesn't mean it's not worth putting out on your program. We should be. Yes. Uh, it would be a token of... It, it would be... Uh, and it, it, it would tell the Europeans, we understand the extent to which we own this along with you. Right? That would be important. Second... Uh, we can contribute over there, and I don't. Uh, monetarily, we are already doing that, but we have to get our numbers up. I mean, yeah. four million uh, Syrians alone uh, have been driven into exile. Many more millions uh, internally million. displaced. Wow. Right, mm. four million, uh, and we see the consequences in Europe every day. Now, look at the numbers they're talking about. Their numbers are way over a million by way of what they're planning to absorb right away. We have absorbed 1,500 Syrians in the last, uh, well, in the last year, 1,500. It's, it's, it's just not enough, Bert. Uh, we, have to get our, we have to get our policies in order. Uh, I think it's a terrible shame that uh, we have turned... We have turned this crisis into a political football, uh, a kind of signifier, uh, dividing left and right in this country. Mm. That's, it's not the moment for this. It's not the moment for this. Second point, uh, I, I think we have to rethink our notion of strategic advantage. Yes. Okay? Uh, we, we, we can no longer conduct policy uh, on, the, on the basis of traditional strategic advantage in the Middle East. That's what produced this crisis. Uh, what would an alternative be? Well, in the Syrian case, the Russians have a quite coherent, sensible uh, policy uh, to uh, address the various uh, dimensions of this. One, gather all parties together uh, to counter ISIS. Mm. Uh, two, uh, negotiate diplomatically in a sort of all-parties conference format. Uh, 
a, tr- a political transition into a post-Assad uh, government in Damascus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we refuse to sign on for that, all right, because it's a Russian idea, okay? That's what I mean about bad strategic thinking. Um, we have to get past that. That's two. That means a, a complete renovation of our concept of what we should be doing in the world and why. All right. Third, hanging off this, uh, I use the term Marshall Plan. I don't yes. mean in its very particulars, but I think uh, I've argued this numerous times in my columns. I think we need to uh, look at the Middle East and recognize that if we're going to address this problem, all that's going on there comprehensively, including the Islamic State and all the rest, we need a huge, very ambitious, imaginative investment program for infrastructure, education, urban development, the whole nine. Uh, It has been done before. Uh, There's People say, where are you going to get the money for that? Well, we have some, the Europeans have some, and we can, and we can uh, ask our, our friends, in many cases our regrettable friends, in the, in the, the, among the Middle Eastern mo- monarchies yeah. to, to cough it up. Really? Uh, uh, the, the, the resources are there, providing the human community wants to put them to constructive purpose. Uh, that's, uh, uh, I'll say one thing. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I, uh, I've been advocating this for some time, yes. knowing full well that it sounds like something a Boy Scout would say, right? Uh, uh, the French term for it is uh, angelism, right? Uh, impossible idealism. Right? I understood but, that. But, but look, look at the situation now. Right. If, if, if what I propose is not the most realistic way to a solution... Tell me. What we're doing now, the idea, you know, our, our strategic interest there, you know, we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again. And has, right. it, has it worked? No. It's produced absolute disaster. Syria, Iraq, you have people there who it's impossible to live. They're getting out. And uh, very interesting you point out what the Russians are doing. I hadn't heard a thing about that. Funny about no, that. really. Hmm. How our, our mainstream media hasn't mentioned anything about getting the parties together and trying to do something about it. You know, the, the old definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting <laughs> a different well, result. We're getting the same results. It's just... It, n- it, go ahead. It's, it's, the Russian proposal is complicated for us because... When they say everyone, all constituencies gather in this anti-terrorism effort. And they are very much against ISIS, yes. Right, of course. They, they are very worried. Look, uh, the terrorist threat from, the, from Syria in that region is far closer to Russia's frontier yeah. than it is to ours, believe Absolutely, me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but when they say all parties, they're talking about the Iranians. They're talking about the Assad government. All, all of these people, these people are, are totally opposed to ISIS, okay, Islamic State, right? And this is problematic for us because we, can't be, because we cannot adjust our thinking. If Russia says something, we have to be against it. Right. We have to get past that, uh, you know. Uh, and the Iranian, uh, the Iranian situation, 
uh, we've done very well with this uh, nuclear deal. Yes. But uh, it's going to take some imagination and guts for for American uh, leaders in uh, foreign policy circles to carry this over to greater cooperation with the Iranians, and there's plenty of advantage to doing so. But we, we, we seem rather stuck in, uh, in outdated uh, ideas of what is best, what is to our advantage. It's, it's a shame. Right? It's really incredible to me as the presidential uh, campaign goes on. You see, each candidate uh, largely on the Republican side saying, no, we have to win. And, and the right. alleged leader of the Republicans right now, uh, Donald Trump, was saying, oh, it feels good to win. We can win. We never get tired of winning. What yeah. the heck? I mean, it's not... Well, I have a thesis on this point, Bert. Sure. And it's, and it's this, okay? We get arguments against the Iranian nuclear agreement. Right. Uh, we get arguments... Uh, against uh, any support for sort of tactical support for the Assad government in in very in the very extreme circumstances we now have and see uh, and, and so on right uh, I I think there's something larger almost unconscious going on here right mm. I think the people you just mentioned the conservatives mostly but maybe most of us I think unconsciously. We recognize that all of these circumstances shout at us one really large truth. The era of American primacy abroad is ending. Yes. Uh, and we can't, many of us, we can't take it. Yeah. We, we can't face it. We, we, we cannot imagine a world in which we are other than horrible word, indispensable, the yes. all-powerful, the, the hyperpower, the superpower, whatever you want, right? I, I think it would do us absolutely nothing but good if we could get past this yes. uh, sort of national neurosis uh, and embrace another kind of world yes. that could be stabler, uh, uh, prosperity could be more widespread, equitably distributed. Yeah, uh, there would be less conflict, less famine, and all the other things that are entirely interrelated. Every single one of them. Yep. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's a generational project, right? And luckily, the conversation you and I are having, I, I, I counted a contribution to to this long generational project. At least we can talk together on the telephone. Hmm. and put these ideas out. That counts. And I think younger people, I'm happy to say, I'm, I'm enthused. Uh, Bernie Sanders says 80% of young people who could have voted didn't turn out last time. They're getting fired up, and they're ready for this. And I need to recommend uh, a book that uh, I, I read by our guest today, Patrick L. Smith, uh, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century, published by Yale University Press. He, he talks a lot more about this, and it's, it's very important. And I have to say, you know, you get your right-wingers who are just full of macho bluster. I also saw Hillary Clinton, you know, looking tough, wanting to look tough, needing to look tough, you know, full of bluster and, and you know, militaristic, imperialistic bluster as well. You don't hear that from Bernie Sanders. I think he knows it doesn't right. work. It doesn't work. I, and, I, if we're going to chip in, 
tip into this kind of conversation, Bert, I'm happy to. Uh, I, I wouldn't be for Hillary uh, as president. I recognize there are advantages to a, another Clinton presidency on the domestic side. But uh, in, in matters such as we're discussing, mm. no. Uh, they don't call them Hillary Hawks for nothing. Ditto Biden, I might add. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, Biden has been ex- the sort of a po- the point man in in uh, prolonging the Ukraine crisis by encouraging a very incompetent government in Kiev uh, toward a military confrontation with Russia. It's just, you know he's uh, he he's not the guy, right? Uh, uh, I could look at Kerry for sure. Mm-hmm. He's really. Very he has done well as Secretary of State. Yes. Yeah. I have been among his vociferous critics in the past. Right. But he's, you know, he, yes, he pulled this Iran thing out just superbly. I, I tip the cap for that. Yes. And when uh, if they were to bring him in as a, uh, as a draft ca- candidate, we could I do worse. It as a voter. We could do worse. I supported him in 04. Course he, anyway, yeah. that's another thing. And I, I, well, I wanted to mention, I was really taken aback. I was at a Labor Day event, and I spoke with a TV reporter from Sweden who told me that one town in Sweden has accepted more refugees than the entire U.S. so far. And I just thought that was interesting. We have to do something about this. Look, we poked these guys in the eye. You know, it, it's not all of our making, but awful lot of it is. And we, you know, just to say, oh, we're, you know, the tough guys and, you know, take this anti-immigrant stand as, as has been taken, which is clearly uh, racist in nature. You know, it just doesn't work. We have to try something else. And I, I want to ask, you know, looking to the future of, of Europe, where so many are settling, they're going to be new citizens. They're settling in to new homes. As yes. we've seen here in the past, there was the, in the U.S., there was the nativist know-nothing. Today's, there are uh, rabid anti-immigrants who talk about building a wall against immigrants. And, and, and you write, Patrick Smith, as Europe's demography changes, uh, political balances are likely to be altered, too. And, and you yes. predict that this will result in strengthening of social democratic parties and weakenings of conservative or right-wing parties. I, I wonder if you could explain how social democratic policies might uh, benefit from this and might work best to handle these new big demographic changes. Sure, sure. Uh, I think the best way at the question is uh, to, to draw a parallel, for clear in my mind, between the political consequences of um, uh, Latin American migrations into America, okay? Uh, I think it's it's roughly parallel. Non-Western society, and, and we have a... Uh, we, 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 we need to sort of uh, blur or maybe even erase the lines between politics and culture, okay? Uh, uh, Non-Western societies tend to place a much greater value on community identity and a much lesser value on individual identity. Right? Mm-hmm. To me, uh, and, and the, the, extreme is, the extreme is found in East Asia, the Japanese and Chinese, of course. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, this suggests that uh, social democratic parties that stress um, a public 
role in the general welfare of citizenry uh, are going to do a lot better than parties that stress sort of, in our American case, radical free market uh, notions of, of how society works, superiority of the market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, the, the British have a similar uh, ethos, dominant ethos of the yeah. party. Uh, but if you look at what happens, in, I mean, there's a reason why the Republican Party does all it can, legally and otherwise, mm. to discourage minority voters. That goes to my point. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't have a ledger of statistics in front of me, but I think what we will see uh, as America becomes a genuinely diversified yes. society will we'll bear this out, and I think the same thing will happen in Europe. That's mm. my thesis, okay? Yeah, the, uh, you know, white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant rule, male rule, is, you know, it's, it's scared, clearly, and they're trying to look tough and be tough and say we got to get back to the way it used to be. Uh, you know, it's very defensive. <laughs> extremely... I'm extremely suspicious of nostalgia whenever it <laughs> pops up. You know, it, it, it always, <laughs> the chest out sort of, yes. uh, the chest out sort of nostalgia we get from the Republican lineup, and uh, why dwell upon them alone, many, many of oh, us, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a token of weakness. Yes. As I like to say in lectures, Every time I hear somebody say we're the indispensable nation, mm. it reminds me of how extremely insecure we are. Yeah. Interesting. And if we like security, people would really prefer security. And the way we've been doing it has, I mean, look, our drone program, lots of programs have done nothing but create more terrorists. Our, our war, our military attitude yeah. toward ISIS, now how well has that worked? It seems to create more ISIS. Your article, we're coming up against uh, the clock here. Your article ends with this. Apart from the matter of responsibility, there's another big reason Americans should watch the European crisis carefully. Everything we see is but a variation on what vexes this country every day of the week. Well, that calls for an explanation, if you would, please, Patrick. Well, uh, the Europeans, as they settle these many hundreds of thousands and millions of people, uh, as I noted... They're going to have to alter their idea of what it means to be a European, aren't they? Uh, yes. uh, this is no small matter, right? All these anti-immigration parties and blocks and so forth, movements, uh, <clears throat> have a notion of Europeanness based on skin color and religion and all these other things. That's going to have to change. Yeah. Okay? Well, ditto here. Uh, we, we live in a country that uh, that takes... that draws its tradition from uh, a white Anglo-Saxon settlement. Mm -hmm. um, and that's historically accurate. That's how yeah, yeah. America was, that's how Europeans settled America, uh, setting aside the Native American question. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, this is ending. I mean, it's, uh, you know, rem <clears throat> remember, the, the great waves of immigration in the 19th century, the Irish, the... Yes. The Middle Europeans, the Italians, 
huge resistance yes. on this basis. Huge. They're not of the same ethos. They're not of the same culture. Well, uh, they are here now. Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, that's why I'm here. Uh, yes, I'm here. But uh, uh, this will go on, and and uh, our our uh, our identity, what it means to be an American, has to change. And once again, when I hear somebody stand up, and uh, I believe it was Sarah Palin, mm. and say. You want to, or Trump, uh, you want to be here, speak English. That's our language. Right. Every, when I hear somebody say that, I say, wow, we are really very insecure uh, mm -hmm. if that's what we have to insist upon. And, of course, it will not prevail. No, and the opportunities for positive change are right here, and we have to, in my opinion, take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, thank you once again, Patrick L. Smith. You can follow his stuff at Salon, uh, his, his book, uh, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. I, I highly recommend it. This is an opportunity, this refugee migrant crisis. Uh, we can learn something and change and become more secure. Thanks once again for being with us. You're welcome, Bert. It's always a pleasure to exchange with you. Ah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much.